Welcome, welcome, welcome. I tried to go extra low, did you? Welcome, welcome, welcome to Armchair Expert. I'm Dan wow. Shepard. How low can you go? Welcome, welcome, welcome to Armchair Expert. Wow. I'm Dan Shepard. That's low. Let me try. Okay. Welcome. <laughs> Sounds like a little kid when a little kid tries to make an adult voice. <laughs> it does. I don't want to go to school. Welcome. That's about the best I can do. Welcome, welcome, welcome. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole different thing. Yeah, isn't that's it? a yeah. different thing. <laughs> okay. Boy, I'm sorry, Rob Lowe. Rob Lowe. Uh, Lo- well, your name. The audience didn't hear your name. Oh, Miniature Mouse Padman. <laughs> Miniature Mouse Pad. Uh, today we have <laughs> Rob Lowe. You know Rob Lowe, goddammit. If you don't know Rob Lowe, throw your throw your phone out the window. Well, of your no, car. just get to know him. No, you, if you don't know him, <laughs> crash your car into a telephone pole. Oh, my goodness. Rob Lowe is an actor, producer, and director. He's also a damn good writer, as we'll get into. He has won two Screen Actors Guild Awards, been nominated for six Golden Globes, and nominated for a Primetime Emmy. Mm. He's been in some of my favorite movies, of course, Outsiders at the top of that list, which we talk about bunch about there's a, so much tasty gossip in this episode more than normal it, it is it feels like you're getting a real inside scoop on some uh, old hollywood tales yeah i really loved talking around and he has a podcast as well you can listen and subscribe to literally with rob Lowe on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, spotify stitcher and all your major podcast apps uh that is Coming soon, so keep your eyes peeled for Literally with Rob Lowe. Please enjoy, Mr. Rob Lowe. We are supported by Squarespace. Guys, we have a Squarespace website that's just gorgeous. That Wobby Wob, you uh, you built that yourself using all the templates, yeah? I sure did. Yeah, easy peasy? So easy. Well, the best part about Squarespace is it's an all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. You can get discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools, and you can choose from professionally curated layouts and styling options with Squarespace Blueprint. Plus, you can kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with the code DAX. We are supported by Sleep Number. Oh, mattresses can be a pretty big purchase. It's kind of like a home. You and your partner have to shop around for one that you'll both love that's comfortable and suited to your preferences. Well, I'm about to make your lives a whole lot easier. Instead of hopping around from store to store, just check out Sleep Number Smart Beds. They're designed for you and your partner's ever-evolving sleep needs. When you see it, you'll know it's the one. I mean, this just changed the lives of my bride and I. The fact that we didn't have to compromise on the firmness of the mattress and the fact that it can evolve as we evolve is incredible. Sleep Number is great because it's all about what you need. You can adjust the firmness to your ideal settings on each side, perfect for couples. The smart beds respond and adjust to your movements throughout the night to help you sleep better. My Sleep Number is an 85. Whether you need something with more support or something to help quiet the snores, Sleep Number has you covered. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. He's an armchair expert. He's an armchair expert. He's 
So where are you at right now? I'm up in Montecito, where I live, and I'm hunkered down with my wife and my two boys and one of their friends. And we've been like, you know, we're just counting the days. I know I am, but I think we're both addicts, right? So we love isolation yeah. anyways, oh, yeah. right? <laughs> Last night, everybody's making a puzzle. And I was like, good night. I am off to isolate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like you. If isolation were in the Olympics, I'd be Michael Phelps. Multiple gold winner in, in isolation. Yeah. But did we have different things? I really enjoyed the powder variety of that cocaine. Were you, were you a <laughs> the powder variety? I like the old school references. Tootski, Bolivian <laughs> marching powder, Schnee, Schneid. Gak. <laughs> oh, Gak. Gak was always such the gross. Like, Gak came out right before everybody started doing speed, right? I think. Right, right, right. You had money during your addiction, and I was pretty broke, so I was getting mostly Gak with a lot of gasoline in it, I think. <laughs> yeah, the baby diuretic was always my- yeah. Go to. Oh, good. So you had the whole cornucopia <laughs> then, right? You enjoyed all the stuff. I enjoyed pretty much all of it. But like anything else, it, for me, it always started with that first Heineken or whatever it was. Like, it was like, I'm just having a beer. It's Monday Night yeah. Football with the boys. Yeah. I'm just having a beer. Then, you know, two days later, I'm still staring at the screen, but there's nothing on it. Same, same, same. Same, same, same. I'm like, I'm going to have a beer while I cook dinner and then literally cut to three days later. Like, uh, did I even finish that dinner? Did we eat it? <laughs> did we, well, you know you didn't eat it. And then, yeah, it starts as something really social. And then I always found myself, you know, the end of it, just firing off emails, you know, four or five page <sighs> emails, just boom, 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 boom. Uh, so much to say, so eloquent, so articulate. Boom. It's like the scene in Jerry Maguire. Yes. He's all screwed up and he writes something he can't take back. Did you ever write anything to anybody that you regretted? Almost all of them. And <laughs> uh, in, in the clear light of day, I was like, no one wants to be this intimate with me. No one wants to oh, hear man. this sexual of thoughts. Uh, yeah, none of it was within the parameters of what a normal person wants to hear. <laughs> See, I, I got lucky in that I got out of the game before Coke was really cheap, before there was Viagra, uh -huh. before oh, yeah. there was gnarly sleeping pills easily available, yeah. and before FaceTime and all of that. Because that combination yeah. would have killed me. Oh, I just missed it, man. There would be a video record trail of all of my middle brain reptilian thoughts and actions documented forever. There's no question about it. Yeah, no, it's, I, I look back on it and go, I'm, I'm actually glad I did all that. I really am, because I, I, I got it all out of my system and I learned so much and it makes me laugh. And a lot of it was fucking awesome or we wouldn't have done it. Yep, agreed. I want right? all those memories. I just don't want to do it anymore. 100%. How long ago was that? You have a long time, right? If things go to plan, I'll be 30 years in May. Fucking wow, A, dude. That congrats. is amazing. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank yeah. You. So over the 30 years, so I've been clean for about 15 and a half years, and wow, some things amazing. have come out where I'm like, dang, I think I would have enjoyed that. Now, so I'm curious, <laughs> like ecstasy wasn't a thing, right, 30 years ago. Do you, do you ever feel sad no. that you didn't... I took a stab at it, but the problem, it, it was new. By the way, I was shooting a movie in Dallas, Texas called Square Dance. The nightclub that was there was called the Stark Club. Oh, that's a very famous- Very famous, and there's a, there's a documentary, but they 
they would give you ecstasy when you walked in the door. What? Yeah, yeah, it was not illegal. And it was like invented, and I'm going to get this wrong, but it was like invented in some laboratory there. And it was, it was meant as a uh, mind awakening, but it was not illegal. And it was at the very, very beginning. And I went there, of course. And, sure, uh, sure. They would, they would hand it out to you, but that was its earliest iteration. So oh. I always wondered, did they make it better? Did they make it worse? Good for you. Good for you. So, so yes. Yeah, so I happen to know the history of it because I'm a junkie. And uh, the mm. Germans invented it, right? Part of their war reparations is we got all the patents to their medicine. And so it was just that formula for MDMA was sitting in a book. Someone decided to concoct it. They tried it. They thought, oh, this has therapeutic purposes. They started using it in Texas for therapy. And then it made its way to that nightclub you went to, you lucky motherfucker, <laughs> unicorn. And the, and then it took off. But, but wow. I took ecstasy, right? So it was probably cut with meth quite often or heroin or whatever. But now I understand Molly is just pure it's MDMA. And I have friends that say there's no hangover. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I could have had that experience and no hangover. That exists today? I know. The other thing I always kind of liked a little bit, like only a once or twice a year was magic mushrooms because I laughed and laughed. And yeah. There's also part of me that's really into, uh, what is it where everybody goes down to the rainforest and does- Oh, uh, ayahuasca. Ayahuasca, <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I think I'd, it'd be fun to see visions and learn about the universe's secrets. Right? I agree. I agree. I, you know, I'm on the fence, uh, you know, because Michael Pollan wrote this great book about it. And there are definite therapeutic, you know, advantages to that, to diminishing your sense of self. I yeah. do think, I mean, I don't trust myself to administer it, but, uh, <laughs> it, you know, I could see not being very judgmental if someone did it with a therapist and stuff. Well, a lot of, there's also a school of thought that, that it helps addiction in some way. I know people who've tried it in that capacity, but the people that I know who've done it and gotten a lot from it were the people who were doing it as a sort of spiritual mind awakening, Zen meditation, whatever the hell kind of thing. Yeah. But, but I don't, I also don't want to be like the story that I always heard. I don't know if it's true is that Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys literally took one hit of acid and was never the same. Right. Yeah. Right. One, you never know what's in the stew, right? That's yeah. like, all yeah. it takes is one bad one bad incident and and you're done. I mean, that's, how old are your kids, by the way? Because I'm wondering what you tell them about drugs because I've been through it with my boys. I'm so glad you just said that because I was going to ask you the same thing, which is I am pro my children doing mushrooms at some point. I do think it, it well, A, there's a lot of different studies that have pretty conclusively shown that you have long lasting creative advantages, right? Like you, people who've done mushrooms have markedly more creativity Hmm. Uh, that lot that lasts. So yeah, I guess I'm going to tell my girls to do shrooms and to smoke pot and to drink and just don't do cocaine or opiates. If you don't do those two things, you'll, you'll likely be able to do all the other ones for the rest of your life. But if you get involved with those two, it's probably going to end the party, or at least it did for me. What, how about you? What, what's your stance? Well, I agree with all of that. The wild card though is Adderall. Because that's what kids kids today are are doing is like they tell me that why would we do coke when we ha when we can do Adderall and everyone has it right and everybody has it and I and you know like for my oldest son Matthew it saved his life studying L literally he I mean he went to Duke graduated there went to Loyola Law School graduated there passed the bar that kid doesn't pass any of those tests for sure yeah without Adderall yeah. it's a great thing but it's so easily abused. And they're doing it for sure. Now, do you think you had any ADHD or any of that stuff growing up? 
Oh, for sure. When all my kids got tested with every battery of everything, you could, I made the mistake of doing it as well. Uh-huh. And part of it was an IQ test. Mm. And an IQ test is a, is a whole thing. It's like not the version we were given, if maybe you were given it in school, where it's like five pages and it's kind of over. It's like, it's like seven different tests and it's very, very, very in-depth. And turns out I have the mental capacity of like a nine-year-old. No. Oh no, it's, I'm telling you, I should never have done it because had I known what my, what my IQ is, I would never, I wouldn't leave the house. I'd be like, what's the yeah. point? I'm not gonna amount to anything. I'm never gonna be able to accomplish anything, but yeah. on, on, on a certain part of it, I was like superhuman. Right. Superhuman. Like yes. said, I've never seen anybody test this high in this one. And then in the other, he was just looking at me like what, all the sort of spatial stuff where it's like a giant game of Tetris. And yeah. I'm like, I don't know how to put that shape with that shape. Yeah, it's, it was really <laughs> insane. That kind of begs the question. I always wonder, I mean, there's clearly, and I'm not making a case against it, but there's clearly advantages to labeling kids things. But at the same time, I worry what labels do. So to your point, if you found out when you were 18 that you... <laughs> you know, you were scoring in ninth grade level, you know, <laughs> wouldn't that have limited you? Wouldn't you have readjusted your, your sights? It is not just that. It's the ignorance is bliss thing. I mean, you know this stat, I'm sure. And whenever I tell other people that they're just shocked that in the Screen Actors Guild, right? Now, this is the guild you're in if you're lucky enough yeah. to be a professional actor, right? So in that guild... 99% of the guild does not make enough money to support themselves. Yes, yeah. yes. Now, if, you, if you'd have told me that when I was having to decide whether I was gonna go to USC to study, you know, whatever it was gonna be, marine biology or whatever, or drop out to go do a movie, I'd have been like, maybe I better stick with this marine biology thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I totally agree. Now, on that topic, I have loved you as someone oh, who grew up watching Youngblood, uh, class, I'm like, yes, I want an older woman, I want my buddy's mom. I mean, whatever, <laughs> you, were, whatever you were doing on screen, I'm like, sign me the fuck up. So I had that uh, version of you. And then as someone who loves to read Vanity Fair, they published yep. an, uh, an excerpt, maybe it was an entire chapter of your book stories I only tell my friends. That's one of the best things I've ever read in Vanity Fair. I was like, this motherfucker is a great writer. And what I gathered from reading it was, thank God it seems like you were a little aware of what an experience I'm having. Like, it doesn't seem like it just blew by yeah. you, right? So I'm, no, of course, I, talking about you getting cast in Outsiders. Well, first of all, thank you for that. And it's funny, talking to a fellow actor, there was a time when being on the cover of Vanity Fair was like, you'd arrived. It was on the, the list of winning this award and winning that award. And, you know, throughout my movie career and even into the West, I'd never been on the cover of Vanity Fair. And that I got the cover finally, and it wasn't about acting. It was about my writing. Yeah. It's one of the weirdest universe message things ever. So I'm, I'm really proud of that. But yes, when I was going through the Outsiders process, we all knew it was, I mean, first of all, look, it was Coppola- Right, at, Apocalypse Now was still in the zeitgeist, but the movie that was out at the time was One from the Heart, which was really controversial on the cover of Time Magazine, really, really expensive. He, he 
you know, bet it all on it. It didn't really perform. And so he was the guy and, you know, the godfather, his body of work and the notion that he was going to make a movie with nothing but young actors in it. My memory of it is auditioning for months, like months. And every single breathing actor that you remotely knew you would see there because they, everybody did it at the same time. And it was just, there would never be another casting situation like that because it's actually not allowed. You can't have an actor come in for nine o'clock reading and not send them home until 10 o'clock at night. Uh, <laughs> you can't do right, that. Right. Francis was not a big rule follower. <laughs> yeah. The best time to work with anyone is you work with a genius that just got his ass kicked or her ass mm. kicked. And like, that's when you want to work with that person when they, when they're on fire again to, to reclaim their brilliance. And yep. uh, that was that time. But I think what would be fascinating to people is, you, you know, you were born in Virginia and then you went to, did you do junior high in Dayton, Ohio? I moved from Dayton out here in the seventh grade. What age had you moved to Dayton, Ohio? Oh, I was six months old. So I was just literally born in Virginia. And my dad was, had graduated law school there and they moved immediately to his job in Dayton. And that's really where I grew up until I was about 12 or 13. Okay. And now I was just up I-75 about three hours from you in Michigan. And so I have to imagine that the childhoods were somewhat similar, right? Like For I got to sure. imagine like brute strength ruled the day. Is that, is that accurate? <laughs> brute strength, tough skin, Levi's. I remember rolling into Malibu in the summer of 1976 in what I would have worn in Ohio at the time and just having people want to pound me because I didn't wear shorts. You didn't wear shorts in the summer. You wore cut off Levi's maybe. Yeah. Back where we came from, moving from Ohio to Malibu was insane because Malibu in those days was like Lord of the Flies meets the ice storm meets ordinary people meets boogie <laughs> nights meets endless summer, but directed by swingers on blow. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Now, so, and again, I'm going to be projecting a bit and I'm going to make, make some assumptions and I never mean to offend in this process, but I have to imagine what a graceful relocation for you because you're gorgeous and you're artistic and that might not have been the best place for you to explore that Dayton, Ohio. Here's what's interesting about it. And life is nothing if not unexpected. You're right. But in Dayton, I had found my people. Like I had found the theater group and I was doing every young actor part. And then I moved to California, which you think would be a hotbed of it because it's near Hollywood. But in those days, you know, Malibu might as well have been 5 million miles away. It was before our business turned completely to feature young people. It was still an adults only business and they weren't having what I, I was pretty. Mm-hmm. I was like uh, arty and everybody there was like a rough hewn, blonde Adonis beach volleyball playing, you know, which I beach volleyball, what the hell? I'll play, you know, <laughs> I'll play tackle football with you down at the schoolyard, but I'm not doing that. So it actually was even worse for me, weirdly enough, coming to Malibu. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And you went to you went to Santa Monica High, right? Went to Malibu Park Junior High School. It's now the high school. And uh, and then Santa Monica High and had a bunch of great, I mean, the Pens, Sean and Chris Penn were in my orbit, uh, Charlie Sheen and Emilio, Robert Downey Jr. was in my history class. Whoa. 
Yeah, I just want to really, I want to just, for anyone who's not read your book or read that article, I happen to have a, a really great friend, Larry Trilling, who went to school there at that time as well. And yeah, he was telling me who the classmates were. I think it's inconceivable to someone that lives <laughs> in Michigan that you could be in a high school with fucking Sean Penn, Chris Penn, the Sheen brothers, and RDJ. I mean, that's bonkers. And we didn't think anything of it. And frankly, I was the one who was really into acting already. I'm trying to think if any of the of that group was. They were sort of vaguely interested, but I was, I fancied Sean myself- Sean was in that Bad Boys movie quite young, wasn't he? Yeah, but that was, that was still much later because he did Bad oh, Boys wow. right before I did Class. Oh, wow. Who's older? Sean's older than I am. I think he's mm -hmm. three years. Because he was never in my, let's see, he's three, yeah, he's three years older. Emilio was a, uh, two years older. Charlie was a year younger. I was Chris Penn's age, and, and Downey and I are exactly the same age. Okay, so imagine so being a young crazy. lady. What was it, history you guys were in together? What, what fucking class Downey were you and in? I were in? Downey and I were in history together. Oh, okay, not a chance boy. any gal is learning a fucking nope. thing about history. Nope, nope, nope. Who would you look to your left at Rob Lowe or look to your right at Downey? I mean- it's not even fair. It's like- Dude, uh, no one cared. How is what? that possible? No. <laughs> one cared about me or him. They did no not. No way. Is it because you guys weren't big beach bum thugs? We weren't on the football team. We weren't on the baseball team. We weren't beach volleyball players. We also weren't like gnarly, weirdo whatevers either. We were just like regular, vaguely artistic. Kind, frankly, a little bit of pleasures to have in class, a little bit. Okay, uh -huh. okay. Kept I like the sound of all of this. <laughs> I mean, Downey famously was in Madrigals, which I love. Do you know what Madrigals are? Did you ever have Madrigals in your high school? No. It's uh, This is how much public education has changed. It was a, a choir that sang only Latin hymns. Oh, my oh, goodness. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. Talk about niche. Can you imagine <laughs> our DJ hitting that? <laughs> that kind of shit was brilliant. Well, he has an outstanding voice, so I can't say I'm that shocked. Yeah. Okay, so when you went on this audition for Outsiders, are you seeing all these different classmates? I assume that many of those guys all read for that as well? No, so what I was getting at was a lot of them hadn't made the choice to be pro actors yet. Like oh, Charlie okay. was going to be a, a pro baseball player. He could, he could throw the ball in the high 80s at that point. He was really, really good. I think Sean was nibbling around the edges. Emilio was thinking about it. And by the time Outsiders rolled around, he was definitely in the hunt. But yeah, it was crazy. You'd like, Mickey Rourke would roll in, stinking to high heaven on roller skates. and <laughs> In a fur coat or something. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and, then, and then you'd have like, you know, Scott Baio from Happy Days would be doing a two-hander scene with, you know, the kid from E.T. It was insane. It was really crazy. So you, you were pretty darn close to Charlie, right? You spent a lot of time at their house and Martin yep. kind of took you under his wing, as I recall, in that. Because your, your parents got divorced, right? Is that preceded yeah. moving to Malibu? That's right, yeah. So I, we moved out with my mom and her new boyfriend, soon to be uh, my new stepfather. And so did you think Martin was like, just kind of hip to that and wanted to be, you know, extra supportive? You know what he was? He was the neighborhood cool dad. Like every mm. neighborhood has that dad that like, might bum you smoke. <laughs> you know, and, sure. you know, if you're if if he's in the right mood, maybe he'd buy you some beer down at the market. Maybe, <laughs> uh huh. But for sure, always pick you up when you're hitchhiking. Mm -hmm. uh, sure, uh -huh. that was Martin. He was that guy. Yeah, 
Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> Having come from Dayton, you had to be starstruck by the whole thing, oh. right? That you like oh, a year ago you're fucking doing God knows what in Dayton and now you're sitting in Martin Sheen's living room and Apocalypse Now was just a few years ago. I mean, Malibu didn't have that many famous people in it then. So Martin was very famous. He was one of the few actors that lived there, but he was never around because he was doing this movie, Apocalypse Now. And so he was never around. And then he came home from that movie, Apocalypse Now. And it was all yeah. very mysterious. and Which in and, ways might have been worse than Vietnam itself for certain people. Well, for him, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I remember when I, when I got The Outsiders, I asked Martin about it because he'd obviously been through the ringer with Francis. And I said, do you have any advice? And he said, if Francis asks you to do something you don't want to do, don't do it. <laughs> I thought, uh, I don't even want to know where that's coming from, but I'm yeah. taking the advice. <laughs> you guys, what, you shot that in Arkansas, right? Oklahoma. Oh, Oklahoma. Tulsa. One of my favorite parts of your story is getting to the hotel, checking in, learning that Francis in his uh, wisdom has given the socias, the, the actors playing the socias, they're in better rooms and they have more per diem. Totally. And when you're checking in, you're checking in with the young Tom Cruise. Yep. And you, the room is not to his liking. Is that, is that how the story goes? Yes. <laughs> that part of it was when we went to New York. All the L.A. people survived the L.A. auditions and then had the handpicked people had to go to New York to face the New York version. And so it was me and Tom Cruise and Emilio and C. Thomas Howell. And we got first time I ever stayed at the Plaza Hotel. And we check in and Tom finds out that we're sharing a room. Okay, that's that. <laughs> and just goes ballistic. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? It, it, to me, what's great about the story is there's certain people who have always been who they are and that element of them has powered them to where they are today and the rest is history. And yeah. the notion that a 18-year-old actor with, a walk-on part in Endless Love <laughs> and it, like a seventh lead in Taps yeah, could have that kind of like wherewithal, yeah. you know? I remember going, wow, this guy is the real deal. I mean, it made me laugh and it was gnarly, but at the end of it, you can't argue with the results. He's had his eye on the ball since day one. That's yeah. what I liked about it, too. It's like no one knocks on anyone's door and says, hey, you want to fucking be in 12 Mission Impossibles? That's not how it works. Like those people, they're that way and they make it happen. I thought there's something, you know, oddly interesting about that. I've gone down the rabbit hole recently of watching these um, YouTube behind the scenes of Mission Impossible, all the stunts that Tom's doing. And Tom, yes. And, I, and it took me back, man, to being in the Tulsa gymnasium where we had to learn to do backflips. For, for whatever reason, Francis had it in his head that he wanted us to do backflips. I mean, Francis had a lot of ideas that I don't know what was going on, but you know, you ever tried to do backflip? It's really scary. Like you think oh. you're going to oh, yeah. fall and break your neck. It's not easy. I hold people who can do backflips on the same level as road scholars. i literally, I think it's the most fantastic physical feat someone can do. It's And it's hard as fuck to learn. And yeah. Tom was relentlessly competitive. He ended up being the only one who can do a backflip. It is in the movie, The Outsiders, for no oh, reason. Oh, I remember it. He, he runs out of the house and does a backflip for no reason, just to do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
But that's what people who do backflips, that is what they do. They are for no reason. Yes, our friend Ryan Hansen does them every couple hours. See, it's a thing. There's also a really sweet fence stunt. And I want to say, was that Cruz too, or was that Swayze? Someone takes the fence and they do kind of a gymnastic move and then they, who was that? That's Patrick showing off (laughs) his like gnarly gymnast ballet skills. Cause it's got a little bit of a ballet undertone to it. Absolutely. There's an elegance to it. That's undeniable. We were all trying to pull focus. (laughs) The movie is nothing but a bunch of like seven shots. (laughs) I remember when they were doing the the first trailer, they wanted to find close-ups of the actors. And I only have like two of them in the movie. They could barely find one because everybody's in a three-shot or a four-shot. So everybody was doing everything they could to pull focus. Finally, I figured like I had this scene where I was in a shower and I decided to like do the whoopsie doodle. Oh, my towel almost fell. Because <laughs> I figured like that was my only quiver in my thing that I could do to pull focus. <laughs> Well, the other thing I fucking love, I mean, the fact that you're like, Swayze had already lived 20 lives. Like, he was already a carpenter, a ballerina, a football star, a gymnast. I was a (laughs) nuclear physicist before I auditioned for Francis. I mean, like, (laughs) I mean, I don't know how much of it was. Here's the thing is, I know for sure some of it had to have been bullshit, but everything I ever checked on was true. (laughs) (laughs) You'd be like, wait a minute. He didn't qualify for the Olympics in archery, did he? And then you'd make a few phone calls and find out. Yeah. I mean, he was, he could, there was nothing that man couldn't do. Nothing. Literally nothing oh. he couldn't do. On Youngblood, he, he's one of those guys where like you, you get in the van to go to work and you realize they've been up all night. You know what I'm saying? And he's, but I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm working on my music. I'm like, uh, okay. So he would like, Work on his music and do upside down push-ups against the wall, you know? Like that was his his jam at night. <laughs> and he kept trying to get us to put this song, She's Like the Wind in Youngblood. And we were like, I'm not putting that fucking awful song in this movie. It's not happening. And <laughs> two years later, it's a number one hit from Dirty Dancing. God bless oh him. Oh my God. Do you realize he sang that song, I Monica? I had no idea. I'm sure he did the sound engineering and everything on it. Wow. So, yeah, you guys did um, Young Bloods together. Did you get on with him pretty well? I loved him. He was awesome. I guess he really, looking back on it, wasn't that much older, but he was married, and he'd been married a number of years. So it, his life, to me, seemed like two lifetimes ahead of where I would be. So I, I really looked at him much more like a brother or, or a father figure almost than, than a peer, for sure, yeah. because he'd, he'd lived a thousand lifetimes already by the time I knew him. He was an Iron Man. He would go and go and go and go and go and go. Yeah. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by Men's Warehouse. When you wear a tailored men's warehouse outfit, it makes you feel confident, like you can do anything. Whether it's a snappy suit that makes you want to dance at a wedding like no one is watching, or a smart casual outfit that gives you the confidence to nail a job interview. 
Yep, you should give Men's Warehouse a shot, and here's why. Men's Warehouse is the only nationwide men's clothing store that has a tailor in every store to fit your suit, shirt, jeans, etc. to your bod. Men's Warehouse features clothes from the best brands in the fashion world like Vera Wang, Kenneth Cole, and Calvin Klein. Men's Warehouse isn't just suits, they have jeans, t-shirts, shoes, hats, and even underwear. The tailoring is game-changing. It really makes a huge difference in people's outfits if it's tailored to your body. You could have a cabillion dollar suit and if it doesn't fit, it looks terrible. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it's key. Men's Warehouse is everywhere with 600 plus locations nationwide. So if you need one and you will, there's one near you. Feel like you can do anything in an outfit from Men's Warehouse. Visit your Men's Warehouse store or click or tap to shop online. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now, around that time, was there someone's career you were emulating or that you wanted to be? Oh, yeah. I'm, I was a big Paul Newman guy. Oh, good fucking pick. And then, the, you know, there was a little, you know, you know, a little bit of Redford, too, and Beatty. Paul's my favorite. He was my guy. He was what it meant to be a, an actor, a movie star, a public figure, all of it. He was my guy. Yeah. Those movies were so great. They made me want to be in movies, those movies. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because, you, you know, your shit made me want to be in movies and it all kind of, is it weird? Mm. It's got to be uh, weird to, you, you look at people, right? And then you become those people and yet you don't feel like you could possibly be one of those people, right? There's like some kind of level of fraudulentness that you feel. Oh, yeah. When you say that, I go, that's, well, he's clearly high again on something. <laughs> <laughs> that can't possibly be B. Yeah, you never think that you are in the category of your heroes. I don't think, I think that's possible. That's yeah. right. And don't you think, and this is part of a sobriety thing, an AA-ish thing, is you have a fantasy and then you think, well, when I become Paul Newman uh, or whoever, there'll be an accompanying feeling. I'm going to feel a certain way and I'm going to look in the mirror and see myself in, in a new way. And then when you get there and that has not happened, even on my lesser level, I certainly thought it'd feel a certain way that it didn't. And I wonder, do you think that's part of where addiction plays so perfectly into it is that you, you've gotten to this thing and you had this fantasy and now here I am and I have this in the bank account and I'm on this poster and yet where's the magic self-esteem I was supposed to get? Well, that's when people go, he had everything. I don't understand how he could all, he was famous and he was rich or she was famous and rich and how could she throw it all? Whatever. I go, well, that's exactly when you do it. Yeah. It's exactly when you do it because- it doesn't fix you. You chase and chase and chase. And when you get the Holy Grail, everything's going to be unicorns and roses and it's going to fill that hole. And then you, you get on the cover of Vanity Fair, or you get that big movie or you get the big payday or you get the girl you've always loved, whatever it is. And you're still the same person. Brutal. Yeah. yeah. I got to say, uh, I mean, that is what led to my sobriety was like, I had every one of the things I had hoped to have. And I was at my most miserable point of my life. And that got, that that's when it gets scary. You're like, oh, I can't even tell myself, oh, if I just had that fucking job, 
I'd feel better. Cause now, you know, no, nothing's going to do it. I think that's true for all of us. I mean, I know, yeah. I know it is, it is for me and I've heard people over the years share that exact same story who've had success beyond anything even you and I could ever dream of. And yeah. they talk about it didn't fix that. I like to describe it as that vague feeling of either oncoming train, malaise, however you want to describe it. For me, that's what it feels like for sure. Yeah. Now, another great thing about your story that I, I like and I can relate to is just the fucking ebbs and flows that are yeah. just unavoidable. And I guess if you have 30 years, you at least probably had some toolkit to, to help with that. But one thing I'll say about sobriety is it does teach you humility in a way that nothing else really can. Yep. And being humble can be the saving grace of a long career that's going to have ebbs and flows. Yeah. I mean, like I spent the 80s working on my career and I spent the 90s working on myself. Uh -huh. And I got sober in the 90s. I got married in the 90s. I had kids in the 90s. And none of it happens without getting sober in the first place. And, you know, for me, what I've learned in recovery is so in my DNA at this point that every decision I make is through that prism. And it makes everything so much easier. It makes being quarantined that. It's literally we're now in a moment where it is this serenity prayer come to life. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you and I are like, we have a PhD in this shit. A lot of people don't. Yeah. Yeah, all my online meetings, everyone's saying that nonstop. Like, uh, we kind of wired for this. We are, we are wired for this moment. And also through the ebbs and flows of career, the sort of tools you learn in the program really, really help. I was always really aware that the good news is that you have ebbs and flows because that means you've survived long enough to have them. Because there are plenty of people who'd go through a hot streak and then it just kind of, that was all they had to offer. Yeah, yeah. So all my contemporary heroes, whether it's Travolta or Michael Douglas and you know guys like who've been hot and cold and cold and hot and hot and cold and it just never changes, but they're always there and they're always great. And that's, yeah. that's kind of what I like. Now, I would say it would, it would be even more challenging for you, but I don't think anyone that goes into this has an easy time not making their identity the job. And I think it's compounded no. by the fact that literally when you're 19, the ride starts pretty much. And for the next 10 years, you're here for three months, you're there for three months, you're everywhere, right? So you're not doing any of the other things that people might do to, to acquire an identity or to anchor an identity. And then all of a sudden no. that identity changes it has to be a very profound. It was was that what yeah. the 90s was about is learning like who you are aside from this job you've taken on? 100% because for me, it actually started at 15. I got my first network television series and I went from being the guy in high school everybody thought was a theater nerd to I remember vividly the day the show came out, we were in front of a live audience and then the audience was screaming for me. Like, the Thursday before, they weren't screaming, didn't know who I was. The next Thursday, they were screaming and crying. Uh -huh. And I was exactly the same guy. So from 15 then on to, you know, till I'm 26, it's just a whirlwind. And I don't know anything about nothing until I get sober. And then, and then I learn who I am. And that has been the greatest journey of my life, for sure. 
So I got to imagine um, being a husband becomes one of those identities, being a father becomes one of those identities. What have you shifted around and made the, the kind of bedrock of who you are? For sure, it's, it was husband because it all happened at the same time. So my wife and I married now 29 years. I got sober a year before we got together and then had our boys and they're 24 and 26. And so it's really based on family, 100%. And a person of recovery, I try to be authentic to who I am. And then all the work stuff is really, truly second. It really actually 100% is. How long have you been up in Santa Barbara? Was that part of the... That was part of it. The minute we had our first child, Matthew, I think he was six months old. And I remember vividly, because we had to think about preschool. I remember it like it was yesterday. They were like, oh, you got to start thinking about preschool. I'm like, he's six months old. Well, that's the way it works here in LA, you know? I mean, there's not only so many preschools. And like, okay. And they gave me a list of the preschools that were the ones that you should go to or whatever. And they're like, now, to get into this one, you're really going to have to talk to Mike Ovitz. Now, Mike <laughs> Ovitz was like, he was the head of CAA. And I, and I had this, I had this vision of my life where I would have to deal with the very same people that I deal with in my professional career every day at Little League, mm. Christmas pageants, trick-or-treating. And I was like, if I have to trick-or-treat with my fucking agents <laughs> or <laughs> if I have to coach you know, the president of NBC's kid, I'm going to blow my fucking brains out. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I said, we can't live here. And we started looking for where we could live. And I've been up here ever since. I mean, it's probably a, a shortcoming on my part that I felt that way, but that's what I felt. I just didn't want show business and show business people to infiltrate every single element of my life. What is life like up there? How does it differ from LA? The number one thing I was struck by when I moved up here almost 26 years ago, and it's still the same, is you could go to the zoo with your kids, the beach with your kids, a meal out with your kids, a hike with your kids, and finish with a movie all in one day if you wanted to. Yeah. In LA, maybe you can get one of them done. <laughs> right, right, because of the traffic and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, it's, when you think about it, it's insane. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the beauty of it, the semi-rural, which I think is the Midwest in me, the sort of suburban semi-rural sprawl. And then it's a diverse group of people in terms of who is on the top of the pecking order. Yeah. Yeah. No matter what in, in LA, it's, it's it, by the way, it's no different than DC. DC would be politics. And in the day in Detroit, it would have been whatever automotive, you know, LA is a company town, but up here, you have leaders from all, all kinds of walks of life who are at the top of the pecking order. I'm curious how, through sobriety, how you navigated certain situations. Because you had a couple of tough ones. You had the sex tape, which was obviously- Ahead of its time. Stressful, <laughs> very ahead of it. It really was, <laughs> when I was reading about you, it said it was like the first celebrity sex tape. It was the quite first. ahead of its time. By the way, can I tell you, being first is overrated. I'm just here to tell you, <laughs> it's overrated. But I want to know what, how you go from that, which I have to, I can't even imagine what that experience is like. But then to take that experience and then go on SNL and kind of parody it, from finding out you're fucked to going on SNL, what's the journey there mentally? Well, first of all, I, I like I'm sure you, I worship SNL, right? God I grew guess. up, every Sunday I would recite to my parents what happened on SNL. 
And they asked me to come on to do something around the tape, which they always do. Whenever anyone shits the bed, you know, yeah. Lauren is the first on the phone <laughs> to see if he can capitalize on it. And I was like, eh, I don't really want to do that. So I didn't. And then they called me back to host it. Now I was like, okay, I'll do that. And they had this idea for the, the open that I would get nervous before I went on because people were going to laugh at me because of the tape or that they weren't going to like me. And Lauren comes into my dressing room and is like, oh, no, what tape? People don't even, oh, no, no, no. People are tuning in to see what we're going to do with Oxford Blues. I don't even think they're aware of the, the tape. Really? Is that what you think? I'm like, oh, okay. And I feel better. And I go out and they go, Rob Lowe. And I come out and the audience is, we've told them to be dead silent. There's no uh, applause. Uh-huh. None. And then, <laughs> and then, um, I think it's Al Franken stands up in the middle of my monologue and goes, I have a daughter. (laughs) (laughs) It was the hardest hitting, most brutal, but I loved it. It was so fucking ballsy. And for me, what a lesson that I learned is like, if you take a chance like that, by the way, my lawyers didn't want me to do it. My agents didn't want me to do it. Nobody wanted to do it, but I wanted to do it. And it started a relationship with Lauren and Mike Myers and Farley and Spade that brought Tommy Boy, Wayne's World, Austin Powers. None of that happens if I don't do that show. Yeah, and interestingly, like you don't do that. I don't know that Mike Schur thinks, oh, let's bring Rob Lowe in to do comedy on Parks and Rec. You could trace it all back. All to that monologue, literally all to that monologue. We, yep. Yeah, because how on earth do we know you're funny uh, up to that point? Right, no, for sure. Do you think at all, like having had fucked up, owned it, made amends, do you think uh, like a little bit of that muscle memory was at least semi-helpful in that period? Well, I guess you weren't sober yet. Yeah, no, I had another year of trying to do things my way. Sure, sure. Before (laughs) I, I finally went uncle. And that's when you really learn all of those tools. But for sure, it's like owning your mistakes is a huge thing in the world. It's a huge thing in growth and it's part of becoming a man and owning the mistakes of your 20s is a big thing for me to do and and I've tried to teach that to my boys as well. You gotta, you gotta own it. Yeah, yeah. So now West Wing, this is the other one. Now you're dead sober for West Wing, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my understanding of West Wing was originally that show's supposed to be all you. Mind you, I want you to know that Monica might be the biggest West Wing fan on the planet. She's watched the whole thing probably 12 times through. Love. But originally, as designed, you're the lead of that show, right? Just undisputed lead in the traditional way? Sort of. I mean, it's it's an undisputed ensemble. That's for sure. There's no star, it's an ensemble, but I am the guy that got the show on the air. Right, and it's following probably if you're doing percentages, you're you're being followed the largest percentage of the time by design originally. Yeah, for, for sure, and first build and, and, and all of that stuff. But I, I always knew I was joining a team uh-huh. and that the design was, and I'll never forget, Martin has this great, by the way, I remember the day they came to me and said, how do you feel about Martin Sheen playing the president? And I was like, <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? You mean my, my second dad? How do I yeah. feel? Yeah. yeah, that had to be so delightful on so many levels. It was great because they had no idea, like the history that I had. So Martin and I could do a scene together and have so many years of history just by looking at each other. But it, 
I think they thought they were going to have Sidney Poitier as the president. Okay. And then it was not to be, and then it was Martin. And um, he was so great. And the pilot, and all we did was a pilot. We did the pilot and he had two scenes. And I was like, he's so great. Is he, he's, is he not in the show that much? And they were like, he's going to be like the neighbor from Home Improvement. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> That's what they told me. That well, was that, the pitch. That didn't come to bear. <laughs> no, it did not. Thank God. I don't think the show never would have happened without every single person who happened to have been a part of it being a part of it. Like if, if I'm not in it, it doesn't get on the air. If Aaron doesn't write it, nobody ever wants to do it. If Tommy doesn't direct it, it's not as good. I mean, it just, everybody brought something really special. Yeah. And I guess what I gleaned from the fact that you then later worked with Sorkin on a play. Yeah. Which was awesome. Was that even though it got dicey, you ended up leaving the show, right? And they, yep. they gave everyone else raises, but you, you said on Oprah, which I, I can only imagine what that would do to me as a fucking yeah. addict. Yeah. yeah. The fact that you didn't yeah. set TNT to the relationship is I think pretty impressive. <laughs> Well, listen, we, we had our, we all had our moments. It was a very volatile. It's funny. You've been on a thousand sets and, and the energy and atmosphere of each set, I think is really unique to that show. And on the West Wing, I've never been on a show before or after with the level of intensity that that show had. And I don't mean this in a bad way, what I'm about to say at all, but it was not fun. Yeah. Mm. It was deadly serious, but in all the good ways and competitive in all the good ways. The hours were horrendous, right? Horrendous, horrendous. You'd watch the friends come in and their <laughs> Jaguars and their Bentleys <laughs> and their, their fucking Porsches and they'd roll in. We'd already be at lunch. They'd be showing up. Then you'd, Jennifer Aniston would get in her Vespa and drive off and you'd be like, going into your 17th meal penalty and golden triple oh, hours. God. The first year of West Wing, every Friday, we left the lot as the sun was coming up on Saturday. Oh, Every cool. single Friday. By the way, we're in a soundstage. We're not moving around. There's not explosions. Yeah. It's the same set. I found now that I have two little kids, I'm not as fun to be on set with anymore. Because I want to get home and see my kids. So I got to imagine yeah. that it had to be compounding that to have kids during that. And I lived in Santa Barbara. I commuted. Yeah. Oh, boy. Oof. It was brutal. Yeah, right. And so you start eva I start evaluating how they're laying track to me not seeing my kid or not getting to read to them at night. And now the weight I'm putting on the way they're laying track is absurd. Like, I got really got to police myself because... The yep. stakes are so high now. And it had all come full circle because now I'm on 911 Lone Star and we light and shoot that thing like it's a movie every day. And because my kids are out of the house yeah, and because my wife has a job, I'm like, yeah, no, we should do 17 takes this. You know what? We should maybe think about doing an angle where we take this wall out and really get in there. <laughs> like, I'm a completely different person now. Oh, that's so, wow. that's so comforting. Because I'm like, am I just a fucking brat now? I mean, I think I am largely a brat, but- <laughs> You know, funny enough, we were both shooting on Disney Ranch like a month ago, and I was having so much fun guessing what your scene was about because there was a combine. There was a huge combine in the middle of this field. Every time I go to my trailer, I'd see this combine, and I'm like, I have to imagine someone has been sucked into this combine, and, and, <laughs> and, and Rob ah. is extracting this person from a combine. <laughs> was I right? <laughs> Bingo. Oh, yes. my God. Oh, that's wonderful. 
you work with Liv Tyler on it. Yeah, Liv, oh, Liv is the best. She's so great in it. Okay, so before we get to 911, Lone Star, which I want to get to, did you have a blast on Parks and Rec? Because oh. that show was so fucking, oh, you're in like one so of the annals of, of great comedies. Mm. You know, I feel really lucky that I will put, and I say this with all possible humility, I will put the West Wing and Parks and Recreation up there for drama and comedy for yeah. in, anybody to see. And, you know, Mike sure told me that when they were figuring out what Parks and Rec was going to be, when it was maybe a spinoff of The Office, which is what its original genesis was, their favorite show was West Wing. Ah. Mm. And they were like, okay, so West Wing's our favorite show and it's a drama. What is the West Wing if it's a comedy? Oh, oh no kidding. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and so if, if the drama's in the White House, the comedy is in the Parks and Rec Department in Pawnee, <laughs> Indiana. Oh, yeah. God, he's a genius. That's oh, that great? Mon yeah, Monica's, I'm really jealous because my wife's in love with him because he's her boss and Monica's in love with him. Because he's and, perfect. And I can't compete because yep. he's just a better person than I am. So I got no, no <laughs> real you're, defense. You're screwed, dude. He's smarter than you. He's nicer than you. He's more <laughs> yep. educated than you. Oh. There's nothing. And you know, he's, I worked with your lovely wife for a couple episodes on Parks. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah yes, yeah. yes. You guys were the beautiful. It was, I think the, the conceit was she was from the town where all the good-looking people are from. Yes. Yes, and it was a very rich town, and they couldn't go through it, austere measures or something. Yeah, it was. She, we had a blast together. It was so fun. Yeah, she's annoyingly nice to be around, right? And that bitch will fucking, you, you yell action, she'll give you the best take of the day on take one and time to move on. Oh, no, for sure. For yes. sure. She's like an I acting know. robot. Uh, by the way, I love acting robots. I kind of consider myself an acting robot. Like they know if they put me at the end of the call sheet, they're going home. Yes. And I wear that as a badge of honor. I really do. And, and West Wing was like that. They, and Parks and Rec, like assassins, just ringers. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You set that camera up and they are bringing it. There's no finding it or, well, I thought we might try this or like a huge embarrassing whiff and then crushing it on the next day. Just boom, boom, boom. And I, I love people who, who work like that. I love it. Yeah, it's fearless, right? I, I, mm -hmm. I kind of, I'm drawn to that fearlessness. I'm attracted to it. Okay, so you wrote a second book, Love Life. When did that come out? Uh, I feel like Love Life was five years ago, probably. Okay. And that book I have not read, but now I really am going to read it because it's about sex and love and addiction and all the stuff I'm, I'm pretty excited about. And more of a deep dive of the insanities of our business. Uh-huh, uh-huh. One of my favorite chapters is what they don't teach actors in acting school that they really should teach them about being in our business. Yeah, hit me with one of the ones that they they don't teach us. Well, just the notion that you have your big scene, you've auditioned for it five times, it got you the job, and now it's time to do it. And you get on the set and they tell you, it's gonna, turns out we're gonna do it after lunch. <laughs> right, mm -hmm. right. <laughs> and then after lunch comes along, they cause they're running a little behind, so it's probably have an update for you in 40 minutes. Then 40 minutes comes and they're like, okay, we'd like to bring you down for rehearsal. So they bring you down for rehearsal and then they light it. And then they go, hey, there's a problem with the generator. So we're looking now that it's probably going to be about another 35 minutes. Uh, like, great. And they go, hey, we'd like you to go back to makeup and hair and get freshened up because you had your makeup done seven hours ago. So you go and do that. And then you come back to the thing 
And now they're pounding on the going, We're ready. We're ready. Like it's your fault. Oh yeah. Like they're waiting on you. That's yeah. right. Your 30 second trip is everything all of a sudden. Yeah. So now it's, by the way, it's daylight contingents. You're on the cliff and the sun is setting. And now there's about, they go, okay, we got about 20 minutes of sunlight. So we really got to hustle. And again, you're like, I know I've been ready for 12 and a half hours <laughs> and they do one take and you're, you crush it and you're so excited and you look over at the boom guy and he's shaking his head. He goes, no good for sound. You're like, what? They go, yeah, we got a dog bark. Like, Fuck. So then now you do it again. And so anyway, you end up with this brilliant scene and you get a take and a half maybe a minute and a half to do it with all the pressure in the world on you, like it's your fault. No one ever tells you that that's what your career is going to be. They never tell you that, ever. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. Put me in a little aluminum cube and let me think for 12 hours. Oh. I'm going to have some theories at the end of this 12 hours and none of them are going <laughs> to resemble reality at all. <laughs> it's so true. It is real. Yeah, what could be worse than an addict alone with his thoughts? What could, oh, be, what could go wrong? Yeah, totally. Oh, it's dangerous. Okay, I also want to know really quickly, you had a reality show with your boys, with Matthew and John? Oh, it's my favorite thing. I, dude, they paid me to go around the country with a souped-up raptor with my boys looking for ghosts, Bigfoot, <laughs> supernatural adventures. It was, we talk about it today, our, our, my boys and I, it's, it will be the time of our lives. It will be our favorite memories of our life. And, you know, just being idiots and talking shit to each other and being with each other. And maybe we found stuff on some episodes and maybe we didn't in others. And it was just an absolute blast. It's called The Low Files. And it's, I think you can, I know it's on YouTube and it's it exists out there, but I absolutely love that show. I love doing it. It was a gift. What's it like when you work with your wife? Heaven on earth, because we've been interacting for 12 years together. And uh, well, Monica knows she writes all these commercials we do and we get there and we can we can first awesome. trip out almost every take, be us. And, and as she's my favorite scene partner for sure. Generally, our desires are opposing. Just in life. We have two little kids. I think all family vacations should be off-roading. She does not think that. You know, just generally yeah, yeah, we there, have. Man. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So we have opposite agendas. And anytime we work together, we're like, oh, this is lovely. We have the exact same objective. We want this thing to be great. We want to get out early. We want to, like, it's a great opportunity to have aligned goals with the people you love. But when you live under a house, it's endless compromise. What are we gonna eat? No, I don't want pizza, all this bullshit. So I gotta imagine with your boys, to share the same goal of like, let's make this fun, great show, it was probably awesome. It was really great. And it's it more than anything, it's just a great snapshot of our lives together and our relationship. I would do 17 seasons of The Low Files. It was my favorite thing ever. Okay, so as we talked about, 911, Lone Star, was there any talk? Were you nervous when they approached you? Like, you guys know we're not, I'm not gonna move to Texas. So the West Wing is over. I'm trying to figure out what I'm gonna do next. There's a lot of interest in what I might do next. And I've got a lot of choices and it's a really great time, but a, a heady time and a, a lot of stakes trying to figure out what my next thing is. And there's a show on the air called Nip Tuck. Ryan Murphy creates. And I'm like, 
That's the kind of show I should be doing. Why can't I have a character like Dr. Christian Troy? I would yeah. crush that character. I want to meet this guy, this Ryan Murphy guy. I get a meeting with Ryan. I sit there and I go, this is what I want to do. I want to do something like Nip Tuck. I mean, that character's perfect for me. And as I'm talking, the color is draining from his face. I said, what, what, Ryan, what, is everything okay? He says, Rob, don't you know that I wrote that for you? No. Okay. I said, what? He goes, oh, yeah, of course that character resonates for you. I wrote it for you. So it turns out my agents never gave it to me. Oh. The thinking was it was on FX. FX sure. had never done a scripted show. That show defined FX. Defined it. Ryan, as, as Ryan said, I wasn't Ryan Murphy yet. Mm. And I never saw it. So wow. fast forward to 18 years almost later. They go to Ryan and say, we want to do another 911 iteration. Do you have an idea of what that might be? And God bless Ryan. He goes, I don't. But if I did have one, it would be Rob Lowe as a fireman who cares greatly about his skincare. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the genesis of 911 Lone Star. So when it did come to me, I was able to tell them I'm not moving to Texas. <laughs> right, right, right. right. That's wild. You did remind me of one thing I wanted to ask you about. Does it at all pain you? So do you know he was offered uh, McDreamy's role in Grey's Anatomy? I did not know that. Do you sit at home and go like, fuck, I would have made nominally $80 million. Does that pain you? So I love that you came up with 80 because that's about what I came up with too. Okay, yeah. good, good, good. I was trying to do the math and I think it is about 80. I think it I is. I do too, yeah. Don't yeah. you think? Wow. Yes, I do, yeah. And I'm not quitting to go racing. I'm still on it now. <laughs> like I'm, uh, yes. I'm on it this yeah. week still, if it's me. Yes, yeah, you're making right? 750 an episode and you got some ownership. So <laughs> I, so here, and, and this is the thing that really is true is, I do not regret it because I wouldn't have done Parks. Uh -huh. mm. And if, if you said, hey, you can have Grays or Parks on your filmography, I'm taking Parks 10 out of 10 times. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the other thing is that people forget about is like, if it's me, it's me. But they got to kind of rediscover Patrick. That's why they called him McDreamy. I, I, I bet you... I don't have anywhere near the impact on that show that he did because people know what they're getting with me. With him, it was this whole discovery and they're like, McDreamy. Yeah. You're right. It was a story. And in fact, I never even watched that show, but I was thrilled because I Can't Buy Me Love was like my movie. What a fucking mm. movie when he was a kid. And yep. I just always, as I got older, was heartbroken. Like, where the hell did that guy go? He was my favorite. And then he pops back up and the motherfucker is handsome, oh, is yeah. all hell. I know. Yeah. <laughs> He's very nice whenever I see him. He tips his hat and goes, Thanks for the 80 Thank million. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the 80. <laughs> yeah. My last question is you now have a podcast, correct? Is I it do. out yet? No, it is not out yet. We're, we had planned to launch in May, but now with the issue with getting people in and social distancing, we may push a little bit. And um, I've, I have been having a blast doing it. It's seeing and listening to people like you inspired me a ton. Oh, thank you. Because look, we, I don't know about you, but I grew up loving watching people I was interested in tell a 20 minute story if they wanted to, like coming on the Tonight Show and fucking crushing or the Playboy interview when that was a thing. Like it was yeah, like- Yeah, I loved them. Right? I mean, now we have Howard Stern who I love, but like 
there's room for more than that. There are very few places, and now with you and some of the others, there are places that people can come on and let their hair down, be who they are. So I, I um, have had a ton of my friends on. It's been awesome, and I can't wait for people to, to listen. It's called Literally with Rob Lowe. Literally with Rob Lowe. Who's been your favorite guest so far? Oh, gosh. I had a blast with Spade. David Spade was really, really amazing. Maria Shriver was mm. fantastic. Gwyneth Paltrow was great. And these are all people I have really long, long histories with. Yeah. yeah. So we get into some deep dive shit that, that is like, it's not, you know, I don't need to, look, I don't want to have Chris Pratt on and ask him about Guardians of the Galaxy. Right. Enough people can do that. Do you know what I'm saying? So when For I have sure. people on who, who I know and I love and I've worked with, it's very odd and random. And I think that's what people are interested in. I just love this format. I'm so grateful that we live in an era where this exists and the, the barrier to entry is so small. When also you're, you're so authentic in a, a world where there's a whole segment of our business that is less and less authentic by the day authenticity means something. Mm -hmm. It's like the, the two books that I read. Like you can't write books that are successful that are memoirs if they're not authentic. If you're, if you're not willing to let people in in a real way. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's the same as the pod. For me, the, the podcast is a natural extension of writing the books or doing my one-man show that I tour the country doing, which is yeah. also an extension of storytelling to people in an authentic way. Yeah, I noticed when I looked you up that it had all, like the first thing that came up was all these events. Like I type in your name and it gives me Wikipedia and all this stuff, but then it immediately goes to events. And I was like, oh, you do some kind of live thing. And then yep. I was thinking, oh, you must've had to cancel all these. That's a bummer. Yeah. So you do a one-man show. What's that called? It's called Stories I Only Tell My Friends Live. Oh, oh, I like it. And I started thinking about writing a third book. And instead of writing a third book, I wrote this show. So it, what would have been the third book is this show. Yeah. I just tell the stories of the third book and then I do a Q&A at the end. And really the truth of it is if I were honest enough and had the balls to do it, I would just say it's my stand-up because that really right. is what it is. It, that's right. really what it is. Yeah, yeah. Because the stand-ups I love are really personal. You know, they're funny, but they're also about something. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? So that's really what it is. It's a lot of laughs, man. It's, it's fun. Yeah. Oh, I would love to see that. Mm. And I think you're right. I think the reason it's easy for me and probably for you is I go to a room with strangers and I tell them that I hate my wife's guts because she leaves doors open. Then I realize I'm this and that. And, you know, like uh, letting out some of these imperfections and finding that, oh, it's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's something that people ultimately relate to you about. Like yes, more often yes. than not, I say something I think is, I must be the only piece of shit thinking this. And then I say it and then all the other piece of shits nod their head. And I go, oh, <laughs> we're all pieces of shit. Who are we fucking putting on this play for? Who, who, who is perfect that we're pretend we're keeping up this veneer for? Because everyone I meet is a fellow scumbag. You know, it's hard to get through this ride on planet Earth without being a fucking shithead sometimes. I say the same thing to people in that people who've been on the journey of recovery, we've, we, we have if we've succeeded at all, we've learned how to get real at the drop of a fucking hat. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, man, I wish you a ton of luck. And again, great, great talking to you. Thanks a ton for doing this via Skype. And I hope to see you on yours. Uh, Not literally with Rob Lowe. Thanks, you guys. You guys were awesome. All right, next time you're pulling someone out of a combine, I'll come say hi. (laughs) (laughs) You do that. All right. Bye. Talk to you. Bye. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. And now my favorite part of the show, the fact check with my soulmate, Monica Padman. I smell more than that on there. What do you smell? <laughs> okay, we're smelling our microphones right now. Yeah, because we've been using the same microphones for two years now, and I just decided to check in and give mine a whiff. And there is there is a smell there, uh, but it's not foul. It's just, it feels lived in. I guess like a couch at grandma's. At a good smelling grandma's house. Okay. Well, I just smelt it and I don't smell anything. And I have a super sense. I think so. Of smell. Mine? Mm. What's your smell like? What do you it got? It could smell better, I guess. But that's what I'm saying. There's yeah. something there. Yeah. It, it's like sure. if I went to a store and I smelled this microphone, I'd be like, why are you selling like used this microphones? This is used. Yes. Yeah. That's okay. what I'm saying. Okay. It has a, a history. A patina. <laughs> a gustatory patina. <laughs> So it's 93 slash 95 degrees. And you had the fucking audacity to turn off the air conditioner Listen, in your apartment. Listen, it oh got freezing. God. I put it too low because mm-hmm. I don't have central air. I just have a box. Conveniently located in the kitchen. Yeah, or- which is it doesn't help anybody or anything. And it got too cold because I left it on for too long. And then I had to turn it off. I think you had like an iron dip in your bloodstream or something. Are you talking about my period on here? Oh my God, that could be it. <laughs> You're experiencing your flies. And uh, <laughs> people don't know about our joke about the flies. Yeah, the they're going to be, I think they're going to be bummed. There's a lot of things that I get caught saying, like it makes it to the light of day that I say, and it sounds terrible. Crazy. Like, like so when uh, I loved when Kristen was pregnant and I said she looked like a chubby third grader. Oh, Which she loved. Why it. a third grader? Because her face got really round and she just looked super young. Oh. And so she loved it. Mm-hmm. She thought it was so funny. But I think she said it in an interview and then people tweeted me like, how dare you try to make your wife feel fat? And I was oh, like, Oh, I thought they I were like, going to get mad about the fact that you were attracted to a third grader. No, no, no. Well, I wasn't saying I was horny. It was, it was just a cuteness factor. No, but you've also said that you loved, well, side you were note, horny when she was pregnant. Yes. Yeah, side note, I thought it was very interesting that my wife's complete body change that was fascinating right right Mm. but now i'm afraid the flies thing may fall under the (laughs) same thing where someone's gonna go how dare you say that about someone's mental whatever it started very organically right just on your period one time (laughs) and you were like lamenting about it yeah we were joking that there were flies around me following you yes because of the period (laughs) and so now we call it my flies anyway It's no holds bar on this thing. Happy Monday. Okay. Can I take one second? Yeah. Okay. So some folks made us a video and it it was insane. It was. It It, was so beautiful. It was really, really beautiful. And it made me um, cry a bit. And then I sent it to my mom because she was mentioned and she had a nice cry this video was, I guess, because of 200 episodes? She wanted to send a thank you, which was so nice. Yeah, and again, I, I um, what did you feel like? Like when you were watching it, people were talking about how aspirational you are as a woman and stuff. Did, what kind of feelings did you have? 
just so much gratitude mm-hmm. for all of the people that take the time out to listen to us talk about flies. Sure, sure. <sighs> Menstrual flies. So <laughs> I felt grateful. I, of course, felt undeserving. Yes, that's what I was hoping you'd say. I know, I know. I knew that's where you were leading. Oh, you did? Yeah. Yeah, I just felt like uh, I'm not worthy of this at all. I know. Um, I felt like you were. Like the things they said about you, I was like, yeah, she deserves that. I felt that about you. It's crazy. It can feel so small when it's just us in the room It talking. feels so small. It is. Yeah. And it's just us t- chatting with another person that's tiny. And then when you feel and get to see the reach, it's overwhelming. It is. It's um, some people going like, I got sober. It's yeah, just such a- They changed their life. Oh, I, it's it's so unbelievable. We cried. Anyways, I just wanted to thank um, Amanda, Jessica, Morgan, Jessica again, Bridget, Courtney, Kelly, Heather. Um, there were some beautiful comments from Stacy, China, Maria, Shannon, Heather, Megan, Caitlin, Allie, Melinda, Jamie, Sarah, Meredith, Amanda, Taylor, and Zachary. It was so beautiful. And then just special thanks to Kelly for getting that to Monica and, and just organizing and orchestrating the whole thing. It was very, very moving. moving yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And we don't deserve it, but we'll carry on anyways. Yeah. Yeah. We'll keep doing it. Despite the hot box and the flies and the. Well, well what's the hot box? You turned off the air. You oh. hot, like, well, hot <laughs> boxing conventionally is when you roll up the windows Sorry. in a car and several of you smoke a joint and you get the whole car oh. filled with joint smoke and then you're getting a little secondary buzz. From the hot box. I thought it was a fart. You can also hot box with an area, yeah, with, with a fart. That's okay. true. Yeah. And then I also, you know, to be honest, you were talking about the flies, so I thought you were talking about my vagina. As and a that hot box. crossing the line. That is crossing the line. I would never say that. Ooh. Okay. What a what A, a lot of house cleaning. Um, so... We were starting a conversation before this, and you wanted to wait and have it on the fact check. Yes, we were doing it genuinely and earnestly, <laughs> and I said, let's let's convert this into content. Yeah, and it has nothing to do with Rob Lowe, but we will get to Rob Lowe. Yes. It was because we were talking about libertarianism, mm-hmm. and you identify with many of, of the, tenants. the tenants. I used to be a declared libertarian. On my voter registration, it said libertarian, although I always voted for a Democrat for whatever that's worth. But sorry, go ahead. No, but you align with a lot of those principles. Yeah. And you find yourself relating to a lot of those. And when we had Andrew Morantz on. Who wrote the book about the online extremists. Exactly. And he did a lot of research with a lot of white nationalists Mm -hmm. and alt-right people. He referred to a libertarian to white nationalist pipeline, and it's a thing. Right. It's a legit thing that happens, and I remember hearing that. Wow, I felt a lot of things when I heard it, but one was, oh, I wonder if Dax hears that, and if it's sparking anything for him, like, ooh, I'm not saying all libertarians become white nationalists. But it is a common way for people to define white nationalism is through libertarianism. Yeah, so we got to be really careful with the way we say these. Things. Okay. Because because what you're saying is true, but okay, so all mass shooters are white males. <laughs> I uh-huh. mean, there's a couple of exceptions. Right. All mass shooters are white males. All white males are not mass shooters. Of course. 
Right. So that's really important. So a lot of white nationalists were former libertarians. Yes. Which has no bearing on how many libertarians are white nationalists. I would just say that. But what's way more interesting, I think, than that is you said rightly, like, does that give you pause? It should. If you find out a group you're a member of or were previously a member of. Or you believe a lot of the things they believe. Make a leap into this very dismal group. Mm-hmm. Should you question like, oh, what is that? And why was it, you know, why? Yeah, because you never want to be in the same group as white nationalists, obviously. <laughs> I would uh, hope not. Yeah, that goes without saying. But I said, you know, what's interesting is that it doesn't give me pause because I think people are attracted to libertarianism for two dramatically different reasons. Okay. And that's where I said, oh, let's put a pin in it and explore it here. So I think a lot of the people on the pipeline to white nationalism who are former libertarians or are also libertarians, I think there's two kind of big groups in, in the libertarian party. One is I hate government. I want the smallest government possible. Government shouldn't be telling us how to live. Uh I mean, there are libertarians that don't want an FAA, which is insane. They don't want someone controlling the air traffic. Just let let the business sort it out. It's insane. Let people be. Yes. And then there's, it's just a sliding scale. Then there's people that don't want regulation of utilities. Mm-hmm. And then there's people, you know, and so whatever that spectrum is, let's say it's zero to 10 on the libertarian spectrum. I think at the best, I was maybe a four on the financial government side, but I was a 10 on the civil liberties. If anyone doesn't know what a libertarian is, the tenets of libertarianism is there's two sides of this party. The belief that you should have civil liberties, so it doesn't matter if you're gay, you should have all the rights as anyone else. No one should tell you whether you can get a medical procedure. You you have liberty in all of its senses. You can be exactly who you want to be. Uh, you have autonomy. Autonomy, yeah. And uh, conventionally, that's a very progressive. So the thing that generally Democrats are proud of themselves about, as they should be, is that they believe in civil liberties. And then conservatives claim that they pat themselves on the back is is that they are fiscally conservative. They are worried about us spending and becoming this enormous monolith government that's just blowing all the citizens' money who is making it all. So they believe in liberty over your finances and in the small government. So I'm attracted to that. I'm attracted to liberty. Mm-hmm. I'm attracted to freedom of self, self-possession. I believe in all those things. You're a type 8 on the Enneagram. We'll get to that. Yes, yes. But I think there's a lot of people that are attracted to the party simply because it's anti-government. If you hate the government, which I don't, that's not why I was attracted to libertarianism, mm-hmm. but if you hate the government, odds are, in my opinion, mm-hmm. you feel left out of a system the reason you don't like the system and you want the system dismantled is that you feel excluded from the system. If the system's working great for you, nobody who's benefiting from a system wants to dismantle that well, system. Well, that's not true. We learned from him. He, he, he told us, and I believe him because he was in, in the trenches, that it's a lot of people you wouldn't expect and a lot of people who have great jobs and are benefiting that, from society. That's most certainly true what he's saying. Yeah. I don't think that's the majority. I think it's the exception. Regardless, you could also be financially fit mm-hmm. and feel excluded by society. Sure. Anyways, I think there's a, a contingency within libertarianism that attracts people who feel excluded by the system. So their answer is dismantle the system. 
another pipeline other than white nationalism is a lot of libertarians find themselves in these groups that hate the government uh-huh. and they take stands to not cooperate with the government. They won't carry a license. They've been in shootouts with law enforcement. Oof. So that subset of libertarians, I think, are people that feel very excluded by the system. And so when I see that that's a pipeline, that doesn't surprise me. But yet I have no fear that I'm heading towards there because I don't have a hatred of the system or feel sure. alienated or excluded by it. I think it's very generous of you to give them the benefit of the doubt that it's because they're feeling excluded. I do think many of them can and do, but I also think a lot of it has to do with control and feeling like things are out of their control and things have been in their control for a long time. A lot of white male, that's a lot of these people. And they're women too. They've been the dominant hegemonic group for a long time and then they feel like they're losing that anyway doesn't scare you which is fair let me ask you this do you believe in liberty like the concept of liberty yeah freedom and of course so you do you prioritize liberty as well but somewhere it's a ratio as it is for all of us or mm-hmm. equality is also on the table yeah and equality often comes at the expense of liberty there is you know when we had ezra on he was talking about this and he said they don't have to be they don't have to be so right now in COVID is a perfect example of liberty versus equality so people's liberty is being limited right now they are being told by the state to not leave their house and they're doing that to protect the masses they're not doing it per se to protect themselves because they are probably not in the target range of who's susceptible to dying from COVID Mm -hmm. but they're doing it to protect the group right it all is some some ratio you believe in that you feel good in your soul with. Well, I don't think you can have liberty if you don't have equality. If things are unequal and people are at the bottom, they don't have liberty. Those people don't have liberty. If someone else is in control of them or has power over them, they don't have it. So I think you have to have equality in order to have liberty. Unless you are a... Barack Obama. No, unless you are... Well, I'm just saying there are examples of people that are in the zip code underprivileged that do rise out of it. Look, I'm not going to make a case that it's working. I'm not. But there are many many cases you can point to that demonstrate you can move out of everything. And the beauty of why that is, is liberty, is, is, is that there isn't any kind of institutional law against some group of people. Now, there was, there was slavery... But currently, there's no law in place that would prevent someone from being upwardly mobile in their socioeconomic, in their education. So the state isn't trying. There's no caste system here. Well, officially, but unofficially, things are happening all over the place that make it impossible for people to rise out of their circumstances. Yeah. And even if not impossible, three or four or five or ten times harder than someone else. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I concede that entirely. So, so I listened to Joe Rogan's podcast the yeah. other day. One of the things he was talking about is China and how they handled their pandemic, and that's great. There you see the upside of not having liberty. So if you don't have liberty, you can control the masses and totally. you can get them to cooperate with you. And that has a value. We just saw it. That yeah. There is a value to it. And there is a cost to it. So you're, you're always trying to evaluate where are you on the spectrum? The notion that anyone is all the way on the Quality side or all the way on the liberty side, no one is. Even mm-hmm. someone who believes in equality the most 
and you present to them, well, we should right now put all the money in America in one pool, divvy it up, and hand it out so every human on in America has the exact same amount of money. Almost no one's saying yes to that. Agreed. But yeah. that is equality in its purest. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just saying, we're all on a scale. Of course. You were asking me, do you believe in liberty? Right, And you do. Of course. Which is clear, yeah. yeah. And you also believe in equality. Yeah. And you prioritize equality more than liberty, generally, when we have conversations. Well, it depends. Again, I don't see them at odds in the same way you do, so it's going to be hard to have this conversation in this way. I, I, I find them to be very connected, and I think equality leads to liberty for people who don't have it. And that I care about that. Mm-hmm. Me too. I personally am not worried about white straight men's autonomy going away. I don't think it's ever going to go away in this country. And I'm not worried about that for them. I know they, some of them are, and that's what leads to a lot of these groups. But I'm, I'm more concerned currently about the marginalized groups. So again, so here's a perfect example where they can't coexist, which is, so if we're trying to prevent white nationalism, which obviously is a goal we should have, mm-hmm. and we're trying to bring up marginalized groups, we should not be allowing the furtherment of narratives that oppress them. So many people that would put equality significantly higher than liberty would limit free speech to help curb that. Well, they'll start by saying there shouldn't they shouldn't get a permit for a Klan rally or they shouldn't get a permit for a white nationalist rally, right? Okay. Like that we should limit that free speech because we have this other goal of making sure that we're not perpetuating the marginalization of minority groups. Mm-hmm. Those two things can't exist at the same time. They can't work in harmony. Well, you either you either have is liberty violent, that's different. Well, but then then that gets very gray. Did it incite violence or was it violent? Is standing up with a megaphone yelling the N-word violent? No. Could it incite violence? Maybe. Now, is the problem on the person who committed violence after hearing that? It's very murky. Mm -hmm. But most certainly in this case, you're going to have to kind of pick whether you believe in liberty or equality in this moment. Or you're going to have to not pick. You could believe in both. You're going to have to prioritize one or the other. And that's what's fascinating about the ACLU. Often they're defending the Ku Klux Klan so that they can have rallies Mm -hmm. because they believe in civil liberties and the right to say something completely abhorrent, wrong, and reprehensible in public if they want. I don't know that anyone's saying that shouldn't be lawfully allowed, but they're saying we're going to protest it and we're going to publicly shame those people for saying those things. Well, right. So there's some people that protest and there's many that try to get the university to not allow someone to speak. So to actually take away the right. And there are many people that are actively petitioning the government to not allow them to have rallies legally. So they're not just counter protesting. They're trying to get their actual from the government, their liberty limited, which again, I understand why they want to do that. Yeah. It makes total sense. I I agree with them, but I happen to think the downsides of free speech are most certainly worth the upsides of free speech. Mm -hmm. And you just can't have it all. You can't have China when you want to be China and then the U.S. when you want to be U.S. 
just because some people are trying to get people to not speak at universities once every however many we can count on two hands how many times that's happened i don't think in this country we're at a risk of losing free speech like these that's people the point are i'm making I'm, I'm making a point to you that some people are prioritizing equality over liberty i was giving okay, you an example sure. of how they can't exist simultaneously often okay i mean i believe in free speech i don't have any problem with anyone saying anything I think it's fine for them to say it, and I think it's totally fine for a bunch of people to come after that person. Me, me and too. Use their free speech. Yeah, you and I are in agreement. But there are people to the left of you, and that's who I'm talking sure. about. Yeah. I guess I just wonder, trying to turn it around and think, what do I agree with that could lead to something that I really don't agree with? Right. And do I have that? Am I a part of something like that? I'm just trying to look inward and see. It's just interesting. Yeah. So what's interesting is I'm reading a great biography, won the Pulitzer Prize on Oppenheimer. He head up the Manhattan Project, you know, created the atomic bomb. Uh-huh. He was a professor uh, at Berkeley. He was a communist. And guess what? A lot of the left was communist back then. Okay. In 1930. Because we didn't have all the examples of the experiment. So at that time, it was just a theory, a very compelling theory, and he was a communist, and many of his colleagues were communists. But it doesn't work as an economic model for all the reasons you've all pointed out. You can't have a centralized decision-making about uh, selling goods and services. So it was wrong, but, but it was learned that it was wrong, and it was the people on the left who wanted it. And okay. we probably would have wanted it, you and I, if we were alive in 1930, because we're on the left currently, we probably would have been in that group. Maybe. Yeah, and we would have been wrong. And the system would have yielded a ton of atrocities. But that's an example of something that was really well-intentioned, and Marxism is beautiful in concept, and then it doesn't work in practice. Mm -hmm. And we, we could have been on the wrong side of that history. Sure. But as soon as it starts proving itself to be wrong, mm -hmm. I would hope... That we, we would have pivoted? Yeah, I don't yeah, really... I think we would have. You just said you're trying to think of a a way that a belief you have could have gone wrong. And I'm pointing one out where it's the ultimate measure of equality, which is communism and Marxism. But I'm not for the ultimate. That, that's not my sen sensibility. I know it's not. That's what I like about you as a liberal is you don't want a, social, a completely socialist economy. You don't want that. And I don't either. And I yeah. think most Democrats don't, as it yeah, turned out I, in I, the primary. I don't think so, yes. But you can see what I'm saying, right? That, that there are tenets that we're wrong about sure. on the left, that progressives are wrong and people chasing equality have been wrong in the past. I think extremes are the problem, not liberty or equality. It's just once you're like all in on one and one only is where issues start And I appearing. think then what takes over as well is just identity. Sure. And then it's not even about the thing anymore. You're defending yeah. your identity as a communist, as a socialist, as a nationalist, as a populist, as, you know, yeah. I think that's when it gets dicey. Yeah. Now you're just following a party line because you're, committed mm-hmm yeah Rob Lowe Rob Lowe I'm glad it was a long fact check though because he was it was a short episode yeah right? that's true Rob Lowe he talks about the Stark Club in Texas that's where he tried ecstasy mm. but there's a documentary about the Stark Club oh we should watch it mm-hmm yes it's called Sex Drugs Design Warriors of the Discotheque ooh and it's a documentary about the Notorious Start Club. 
so-called because it was the first major project by legendary designer Philip Stark in the U.S. Oh, I don't even know who Philip Stark is. Me either. Hmm. But maybe we'll find out if we watch the doc. Hey, Google. Aww. Aww. <laughs> what if when we got back to the attic, there was a ton of microphone babies? <laughs> <laughs> Everywhere, all over the floor. They had reproduced it. <laughs> oh, you just got a shot. I got kind of grossed out yeah. by that, like walking in and seeing like little, so many like, tiny mics. Like little, uh, little, little pods. Well, like little cockroaches. Oh, oh, they're that small. Yeah, I don't yeah. like that. I don't like. I don't like the thought of that. Even though I love Google. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so history of MDMA. You talked about it a little bit. Yes, a German chemist discovered MDMA. Whoa! Do you know what it stands for? <sighs> there have been times where I knew what it stood for. It hit me. It's gonna take me a second. This is maybe the longest. Methyl hydroxy. Methylene dioxy methamphetamine. Boom. Methylene dioxy methamphetamine. Wow. That Ooh. is hard. That is, I think, maybe the one of the longest words I've ever seen. Oh, wow. Let me count how many letters it is. This would be an amazing Scrabble word. A billion points. 29 letters. It took all my willpower not to... Um, be Messing a dick. <laughs> In a 13, 17, 1, 8. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, that. boy, it took everything I had. Methylene dioxy methamphetamine or MDMA. Thank God they shortened it. It would not be a popular drug. If people had to pronounce that <laughs> to their drug dealer to get it, no way. It's not working. In 1912, while developing other medicines that could stop bleeding, so these German chemists discovered it when they were trying to find these other medicines that were supposed to stop bleeding. The substance they discovered had unique psychoactive properties. The pharmaceutical company Merck patented MDMA in 1914 as a compound that could have pharmaceutical value. In 1985, the DEA declared an emergency ban on MDMA, placing it on the list of Schedule One drugs defined as substances with no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. MDMA has remained a Schedule One substance since then, with the exception of a brief period of time between 1987 and 1988. The year I was born. My best year of my life. Yeah. So you said, as you say, that people who have done mushrooms have markedly more creativity that lasts. There's so many articles about this. People can go down the rabbit hole if they want. One made a major publication that was like New York Times issue. There's a lot of talk about microdosing and creativity. And so I'll read this because this is the most recent study on it. And it's in a lot of articles, but this was one specific article, science article. Psychedelics aren't legal in the U.S., but the laws are more lax in Netherlands, where this guy Hommel and his colleagues conducted their study. Their magic mushrooms or any mushroom containing the psychoactive compound psilocybin are banned, but magic truffles or sclerodia... Ooh, scrotum. Oh, my God. Which are an underground portion of the same fungus are legal. I have to say it again. These sclerodia, that can't be right, sclerotia, Hmm. contain the same psychoactive psilocybin as a more familiar above-ground mushroom. The researchers were invited to do the research by the Psychedelic Society of the Netherlands, which was conducting a microdosing event. Because people who signed up for the event had already paid the organizers and expected a dose of real drugs, Hommel and his team couldn't ethically make a control group and give them fake shrooms. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So, but they could test participants before and after they took the mini dose of psychedelic truffles. The researchers asked 38 participants to do three short written tests before they microdosed. One was a brief intelligence test, 
Another tested convergent thinking, a compound of creativity that involves solving problems with just one solution. In this test, a participant would be shown a grid of pictures with objects. Then they had to pick one object from each row and describe their commonality. A sink, a horse, and a bathtub, for example, would all have water in common. The final test focused on... Did you say a sink, a horse, and a bathtub? A sink? I hope I might have. I'm sorry if I did. A sink, a hose. Oh, a hose. I'm like... What I I'm gonna have to take shrooms to figure out what a horse a sink. <laughs> Sorry, I probably said it. A sink, a hose, and a bathtub. <laughs> the final test focused on divergent thinking, or the ability to come up with many possible solutions to a problem. Participants were given a word, either pen or towel, and told to come up with as many uses for that object as they could think of. For a pen, Hommel said, this could be as dull as write with it or as wild as stick it in the right eye of your boss. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, am I your boss in yeah. this scenario? Okay. <laughs> After taking a dose of around a third of a gram of magic truffles, the participants took different versions of these same tests. The results show that after the microdose, intelligence did not change, but both divergent and convergent thinking improved, the researchers reported. Mm. This was a surprise, Hamel said. The difference could be in the dosage rather than the substance, said study co-author. With recreational dosages, people report an almost dreamlike, unconstrained thought process. This might be great for brainstorming, but not so great for more structured problem solving, she said. Because there was no control group, it's impossible to say for sure whether the microdose was really the reason that creativity went up. People might have learned how to do the test from the first round, Mm -hmm. though that is unlikely, Hommel said. A practice round isn't known to improve people's scores on these kinds of creativity tests. Alternatively, people might have simply expected to become more creative because Mm. they'd had a similar experience with magic mushrooms before or the idea that this was going to cause creativity. But still, Hommel said those expectations would be based on a real effect of the drug. Creativity is highly situational, Moreno told Live Science. Psychedelics might help, but then so might changing up one's office layout or going for a hike. There are too many variables in the actual work world to assume that microdosing makes a key difference, he said. Yeah. It's interesting. It is interesting. The article I had read was more about people who did big doses earlier in their life, and they it was more a survey of people who had done it and like what jobs they had and what kind of I know m- it's measure still though creativity. like they said, and I think this is what I've said to you in the past. You just have no idea what they would have been without it. Right, there's no way to know. You're right. Okay, well, we talk a little bit about backflips. I didn't get to chime in. I wanted to, and I wanted to brag, and you didn't brag for me, which you should have. Um, that I used to do backflips. I don't understand why you don't still. You, why I would you can't. let that go? No, 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 no. You don't understand. It requires so much physical prowess to be able to do oh, that. Oh, I know. I think it's so, the most impressive feat of strength. But I don't have those muscles anymore. Let's it's, get them back. It took me so long to get them in the first place, and then I'm never getting those back. It's all in the abs. Yeah, it's core, right? Core, core, core. It's all in the abdomen. If you and Ryan could do a backflip presentation at all these family vacations, what a, what a great time. I wish I could still do it. I, I really, really do. Maybe we'll learn together when my hand heals. No. I, I, <laughs> I think I want to do a backflip before I die. I think that's a goal. I should, really, that might be 2021's no. goal. You, what if you die doing it? No, I won't die. I'll well, you, do you could. You could definitely land mm, and break your neck. I'm not going to. It took me so long. I didn't have the muscle capacity, despite my elite muscle mass, mm-hmm. to do it. It took me a long time to build up that ability. I 
crashed and burned so hard so many times. <laughs> oh my God, so many times. And the day I finally landed my first one, it was such a big deal. And the whole squad was there and everyone cheered. Oh and, and my God. Coach sent out an email. Oh, wow. Monica work. did a backflip. And she sent it out reminding everyone that hard work pays off. Right. It was one of the biggest accomplishments. What if it said, truly. like, what if to prove that point, she leaned into some stuff that wasn't <laughs> entirely true and they're like, Monica, our least physically talented <laughs> member has accomplished. <laughs> what if she had to sandbag you? It was pretty much true. Of the people who made Matt, we didn't call it that, but that is what, yeah. it, what it was. I was definitely the least capable of tumbling and, so I had to really work extra hard to be able to do it because you had like you had to do like squad tucks, sure, backflips, and you got there. And I did. I don't think I've ever felt more proud. Oh, that's your number one accomplishment. I, I really—it's not my number one accomplishment, but it's definitely the time I felt the most proudest, true pride of my. I was just proud of myself. Yeah. I've never felt like that since. Even when we won as a team, I was so proud of us and I was excited, but it was a different thing. I don't, A, I don't know if I've ever had that, but the only time I can think of that I might have had something close to it was when in Rome, when it was like time to look the way I was supposed to look. Uh And I did. Sure. And I didn't think I could get that way. And I just was like, oh my God, I did it. uh I did all the things you have to do. That's so outside of my... It's when you feel like you're defying the rules of your body in that case. Or who you are. Yeah, which I do think taught me perseverance and like there really aren't limits. Right. Yeah, my thing was I used to, during that movie, Mm -hmm. I would jog every night down the West Side Highway and I would run like four or five miles, Mm -hmm. which I can't run. In fucking high school, I was like, the mile, I'm going to get a note from my dad. I'm not in the long... And I would just be trotting along going, who is this guy? Yeah. Who's running at midnight five miles? I know. Oh, I loved it. Mm, I got to try to get that back. Okay, the rich town in Parks and Rec is Eagleton. Mm, mm-hmm. I didn't even have to look that one up. I I'm just sure. It. Yeah. Um, and that's all for Robert Lowe. Oh, what a blast he was. And I'm sure his podcast is going to be great. Uh, he was great. Yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah. All right, I love you. Love you. Take care. Take <laughs> care.